Well, good morning. There was a Sunday school teacher who worked very hard with her students to drive home certain lessons. So she started asking questions, and she asked the class if I sold my house and my car, had a big garage sale, and gave all my money to the church, would I get into heaven? And the children all said, no, no. If I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard, and kept everything neat and tidy, would I get into heaven? And again, the answer was no. Well, she continued, how can I get into heaven then? And one little boy raised his hand and then got real brave and just shouted out, you gotta be dead. <laughs> I tell you, out of the mouth of faith. Are you okay? I'm okay. Christian life, and he unveils his own personal desire to know and serve the Lord Jesus. And these doctrines are closely tied to the challenges that the Philippian Christians face. And running through this letter, the entire letter is the theme of joy. You know, Jesus promised joy for those who follow him. The angel who announced birth, Jesus' birth to the shepherds, said, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Jesus said, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And this joy is the birthright of all true believers. And it was this joy that Paul wished to see in the little congregation at Philippi. So what is joy? Joy is supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. And it is very different from happiness. The world seeks happiness. The Christian's counterpart is joy. Happiness is circumstantial, but joy is not. Joy is an inner quality of delight in God, and it is meant to spring up within the Christian in a way totally unrelated to the adversities or circumstantial blessings of this life. But Paul goes on to demonstrate that experiencing joy is a function of understanding and believing sound doctrine. Our joy depends on our relationship to God and our life with him. And we need to have a deep and growing experience of the basic truths of the Christian life. And as we understand what Jesus has done for us by leaving the glories of heaven and becoming obedient to death on a cross, we will view our trials differently, we will view our sin and ourselves differently, and we will experience joy. And that is precisely why Paul launch, launches such an intense attack against the false teachers, or the Judaizers as they were known. False teaching destroys joy because it propagates lies about God. 
and to appreciate the, for, the force of verse 2 where Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision, we need to realize that Paul's language cannot merely be described as insulting or abusive. Paul has very carefully chosen his terms to achieve intense irony, not merely to use derogatory speech. There's a pejorative sense of the English word dog that we use to apply to people considered worthless or vulgar. But for the Jews, that term had a distinctly religious sense. It referred to the Gentiles, the people who uh, were outside of the covenant community, and they were considered ritually unclean. So Paul is making a rather startling point when you understand the language. He is saying that the great reversal brought in by Christ means that it's the Judaizers who must be regarded as the Gentiles. They are the dogs. And he develops this theme even further when he calls them the evil workers, refuting their claims that they are doing the works of the law. The Judaizers were, were earthly-minded false teacher whose teaching led to works of the flesh. And in that way, too, they were spiritual Gentiles. And then the third phrase, he, where he calls them the false circumcision, that doesn't even begin to convey in English how absolutely scathing his attack was. And Paul argues that they don't deserve to be called the circumcision, but rather the mutilation. And when Jewish rituals were practiced in a spirit that contradicted the message of the gospel, those rituals lost total significance, their true significance, and they became no better than pagan practices. And so Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride, and he interprets that as the surest sign that they have no share among the people of God. And then Paul presses this point even further by contrasting the false teachers with the true believers. And he affirms that Christian believers are the true people of God. But what are true believers like? Well, he tells us, first, they worship in the Spirit of God. And Paul refers to the Holy Spirit's outpouring on the church, which is ushered in the new age of salvation. And those who belong to Christ are part of this new order, and they have the Spirit so they can worship in a way that is pleasing to God. Secondly, God's people glory in Christ Jesus. And this contrasts sharply with the third phrase he uses, and put no confidence in the flesh. To believe in Jesus Christ is to put one's confidence in him. The exact opposite attitude is to place confidence in the flesh, that is, in oneself or one's own natural achievements. The circumcision of the flesh, as preached by the Judaizers, became for Paul the symbol of a total mindset that is opposed spirit and leads to death. Putting confidence in the flesh steals joy because you can never follow the law perfectly and you can never know if you are right with God. Guilt devours joy. Then in verses 4 through 6, Paul lays out his religious resume and he declares it second to none. And it's impressive. Why did he do this? Because the Judaizers who threatened the Philippian community no doubt appealed to their own impressive Jewish credentials in order to support their message. But Paul's already told us what he thinks about their religious claims, and he demonstrates that his background was second to none. There were seven clauses that talked about where he bragged about this and that, and the first four were just privileges that he acquired by birth, but then the last three really focused on voluntary choices that he made. 
And as an adult, uh, Paul chose a religious lifestyle that left no doubt with regard to his commitments. He emphasized that his approach to the law was that of the Pharisees, and this was widely perceived as the one group most faithful to the scripture, and in fact, the Judaizers couldn't have asked for anything more impressive. But not only was his approach politically correct, but his sincerity and intensity were also a point of pride. I was a persecutor of the church, he said, and then in Galatians 1.13 he wrote that he used to persecute intensely the church of God and tried to destroy it. Well, finally, Paul says that in reference to the law that he was blameless. Well, that's quite a claim. But Paul wasn't claiming to be sinless, but rather just he's saying that he had exemplary conformity to the way of life prescribed by the Old Testament. And the point was that anyone, anyone could have checked the record, asked around, and found that Paul had never been charged with transgressing the law. So consequently, no one could argue that his conversion to Christianity could be attributed to his failure in his Jewish lifestyle. So I want to just step back and look at the big picture. Paul, at this time in his life, before he saved, was really no different than the false teachers that he just excoriated. He was an evil worker. He was the false circumcision. He put confidence in the flesh to make himself right before God. And he was like every man and woman alive without Christ. Do you think he experienced much joy in his life at that time? Absolutely not. Well, then the apostle proceeds to give an account of his conversion, and he doesn't really recount what happened to him on the road to Damascus, but instead shows us how his thinking and beliefs changed as a result of the encounter with the living Lord. And in verses 7 to 8, Paul declares that in spite of appearances to the contrary, that he was actually spiritually bankrupt. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul contrasts the old life and the new life through a series of phrases. And the old life is described by the repetition of the word loss. You heard it. Paul expresses with increasing intensity as his thought progresses, his sense of data satisfaction. All those things that had been important weren't so important anymore. And he, he starts with loss in verse 7, and then he goes in verse 8 to suffer damage or loss, and then he goes... Finally, and uses the Greek word skybala, which is the word for excrement. And I would say that rubbish, like many of our translations use, is far too genteel, the translation. Uh, Paul is telling us, he's using a word we can't use here. But if I did, I'd be in big trouble. I wouldn't be asked back. <laughs> so he's, what he's telling us, though, is that what uh, he is now regarding his previous assets not merely as not having worth, but they were positively damaging as spirit, they were his spiritual liabilities. And in the process of reevaluating his life, Paul perceived with horror that the things that he had up until that point viewed as benefiting him, in reality had been working to destroy him because they were blinding him to his need for the real righteousness that God required. So, um, Paul contrasts what he lost with what he gains, 
and he begins with for the sake of Christ and then expands that thought to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord uh, to the purpose of his conversion with the phrase that I may gain Christ. Knowing Christ overshadows anything else that Paul previously considered a gain. And he has no regrets about having forsaken the sources of his earlier pride because nothing, nothing could compare with the knowledge of his Lord. And Paul recognized the radical antithesis between his former way of life, his own righteousness, and the new hope offered to him by Christ. It was one thing or the other. And I thought one, this one teacher said it very well. He was not simply exchanging one religion for another. It was not one system of rites and ceremonies giving place to a superior system or one set of doctrines, rules and regulations making way for a better one. He had come into contact with a divine person, the once crucified but now glorified Christ of God. He had been won by that person forever, and for his sake he counted all but loss. So the radical choice that Paul faced is then is the same one that we face today. True Christianity isn't merely going to church or following Jesus as your example, but it's counting all things loss in order to gain Christ. So after making it clear that his previous achievements had yielded spiritual bankruptcy, Paul goes on to detail the considerable gains that he alluded to in the previous verses. And the key verse, the key verse in the entire chapter is verse nine, which says that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And Paul uses the term righteousness for the very first time in this book right here. And in English, we tend to think that it means somebody's righteous, they're a good person, they're virtuous, they're upstanding, they're decent, they pay their mortgage on time, they help little ladies across the street, those kinds of things. If we say someone is self-righteous, we tend to think that they're proud or arrogant and they may look down their nose at everyone because they feel morally superior. But biblical righteousness is quite different from either of these ideas. And there are two kinds of righteousness described right here in verse nine. There is the righteousness that comes from man and is derived from the law. And there is the righteousness that comes from God. And it's important to note that they are polar opposites they're mutually exclusive. They couldn't be any far as east is from the west. They couldn't be any closer to each other. And Isaiah described our man-made righteousness as filthy rags. And Paul has finally given up on his own efforts towards becoming righteous through the works of the law. And instead, he now looks outside of himself for the righteousness that only God, the righteous judge, can grant. And it's a righteousness that you receive through faith in Christ. God cannot be satisfied with any righteousness that comes from human beings, but God is satisfied with his own righteousness, which he offers freely to all who believe in Jesus Christ. For those who do, this is the objective basis of our salvation. But here is the most startling point that he's making to the Philippians. Paul didn't have to merely repent of his sins. I think he was very aware that he was a sinner, but he had to repent of his righteousness. 
he had to repent of his righteousness. He had to see and recognize that all of his efforts to do good and look good before God were worthless. They were worth nothing. Paul already knew he was a sinner. What he didn't see was that everything he did made no difference whatsoever. And in fact, it was detrimental because his self-righteousness blinded him to his true situation before God. He had absolutely no idea that he needed a savior. Paul's relentless pursuit of the law was merely his attempt to put God in his debt. He thought, just like many of us do, if I obey the law, if I do all of these things, then God will have to recognize that, and he, he'll owe me, and because I did what I was supposed to do, he's got to do part, his part too, and he's got to bless me. And in, so that's kind of the thinking, but it's startling to realize that he had to repent of his righteousness, that we need to do the same. So in short, Paul asserts that true righteousness is obtained by abandoning one's own efforts and exercising faith. He makes this clear in another passage in Romans where he says, uh, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here's the verse that we never read that's next. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as his righteousness. Do you understand, in order to experience salvation, you have to stop working? You have to stop working. So the question before us is, are you, secretly or not so secretly, working for your salvation? Do you need to repent of your righteousness? Do you understand that everything you do to justify yourself before God merely obscures your need for a savior? I don't think it's too far-fetched to define faith as the act of counting as loss all those things that may be conceived as grounds for self-confidence before God. Counting as loss all those things with which we justify ourselves before God. We count them as loss. They're worthless. They're nothing. And you see that in order to experience joy, you have to abandon your own efforts to impress God and save yourself. If you're working for your own righteousness and salvation, how will you ever know if you've done enough? There is no joy in knowing that you're guilty and having a death sentence hang over you. Okay, there's one more phrase in verse 9 as we move along that we need to mention, and that is the phrase that I may be found in him. Paul doesn't say, I lost everything, but now I found something else. He says that he was found. And he echoes this same thought in verse 12, where he says that he presses on so that he can lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So salvation isn't merely being declared righteous before God, but it's union with the resurrected Christ by faith. It is God laying hold of you. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And Paul now transitions from describing the true nature of faith to how that affects a believer's life. And Paul says that the goal of life is knowing Christ. And in English, again, that's way too weak a translation. To know means to enter into deep, personal, intimate contact. 
And, you know, the Bible doesn't say that Adam knew Eve because it's too shy to speak openly about sexual manners, matters, but because this is what knowledge between two persons is. It's deep, intimate union. And having been saved by Christ, Paul wants to enter into the most deep possible union with him possible. So the question is, do you have that desire to know Jesus intimately? To awake with him in the morning and live each day with him and in his presence? What joy it is to know that the only inexhaustible person in the universe doesn't get tired of you, your problems, uh, your sin, and he doesn't condemn you, he doesn't ever desert or fail you. But Paul's desire um, doesn't stop either with just the mere knowledge of Christ. He also wants to know the power of his resurrection. Paul knew all about the resurrection and preached it wherever he went. He was personally confronted by the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. But here he speaks of wanting to experience the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, how was he going to experience it? He was going to do it by living a godly life. And Paul knew that that was impossible if it depended on his own natural powers. Only Jesus' resurrection power would enable him to live the way Jesus called him to live, to love his enemies, to speak the truth no matter the cost, to admonish the church, to put his life on the line over and over again. This was an interesting observation um, from a well-known Bible teacher. He said, Paul lived in a world of power, most of it originating in Rome, and controlled by the Roman authorities. And the, the Jews were proud of their religious heritage, the Greeks were proud of their wisdom, but the Romans were proud of their power. Rome took a backseat to no one by earthly standards. And Paul understood the power of Rome because he appealed to it on several occasions. But he knew it was, Rome's power was at best, only the third strongest power in the world. The second strongest was sin. For it held people in a vice-like grip through a tyranny far more terrible than Rome's. And the strongest power was the resurrection power of Jesus, God's power. Paul knew this power could overcome sin and death and that it was far more potent than Rome's armies. Great quote. So Paul wanted to experience the resurrection power of Jesus because it was going to enable him to also know the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. Paul suffered greatly in his life proclaiming the gospel. Paul didn't want to suffer for human sin because that was something that only Jesus could, could do. Jesus alone suffered innocently. But Paul wished to join in Christ's sufferings in a different sense. He wished to stand with Christ in such an invisible union that when the abuses and persecution that Jesus suffered also fell on him, he could receive them as Jesus did. He wanted to react like Jesus, for he knew that abuse received in this spirit would actually draw him closer to his Lord. And such suffering always comes to the true Christian. Peter wrote, don't be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Suffering with Christ leads to joy. Why? Because it is, it is a sign of God's resurrection power working in your life. Why? Because of Christ's power, you will be able to obey the Lord like Jesus did. 
Paul just finished telling us in chapter 2 about Christ's obedience in leaving the glories of heaven, enduring the suffering of the world, and being obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the fellowship of Christ's sufferings is won at the price of radical and total obedience. Now in America, where persecution of Christians is really non-existent compared with the rest of the world, we still have to ask ourselves the question, am I willing to completely obey, even at the expense of open persecution and real suffering? Many of us are like the man who wrote the IRS saying, I can't sleep, my conscience is bothering me, and close find a check for $50. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. <laughs> this is not obedience. And it doesn't lead to the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, and it doesn't lead to joy. Well, Paul then goes on and says he wants to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is not afraid for his eternal security. He is the one that wrote in Romans, death and life, nothing can separate us from the love of God. So what does he mean? Well, this is interesting. There is a clue in the Greek text. And the word for resurrection in verse 11 is different than the one used in verse 10. In verse 11, there's a little bitty preposition in front of it, which is the equivalent to our word out. And the, the word resurrection literally means to place or stand up. So to the Greek mind, living people were standing up and dead people were lying down. So Paul is making a pun, actually, and he's saying, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, so that I may give the spiritually dead a preview of eternal life in action as I am standing up among those who are spiritually dead and on their backs. And one commentator said, um, it, it, he's basically saying, as I walk your streets, as I walk into your homes, as I walk into your stores, I want to be so living for Christ that you can see that I am a living one among the dead ones. So is it your desire to be so living for Christ that you will appear as a resurrected person among those who are spiritually dead? Because those spiritually dead people are all around us. Well, starting with verse 12, Paul then addresses a question that was bound to have been on the minds of his readers. Paul's desire to know Christ and the power of his resurre resurrection could have easily been dismissed as something no ordinary Christian could be expected to accomplish. But Paul nips that thinking in the bud, and he writes, I haven't obtained it or already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. And the word press on in the Greek is dioko, and it means to run swiftly in order to catch a person or a thing, or to run after, or to pursue with earnestness and diligence. It's intentional. Well, guess what? It's the same word that Paul is, uses back in verse 6, where he says that he persecuted the church. That's kind of interesting. So what Paul is saying is that he ferociously pursued and persecuted the church, and that same intensity is what it was before he became a Christian, but now he's pursuing the one who laid hold of him, Christ Jesus. Make sense? Okay. Paul continues in verse 13, Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Well, what does Paul forget? He forgets what lies behind him or his past. Paul had a lot to regret. 
And many of us have a lot to regret as well. We get those flashbacks. I, I know I do. And what Paul is talking about is the kind of forgetting that occurs when we refuse to let things that are in our past overshadow the present. It's the kind of forgetting that lets the past be the past, both the good and the bad. It's refusing to indulge in self-absorption over past sin. It is also the refusal to look back wishfully when life may have been easier or finances more abundant or health more radiant. It is a deception to live either in the past or in the future. <clears throat> God's grace is sufficient for the moment at hand. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And forgetting the past is another component of joy. Paul then says that he reaches forward and is pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus. He's saying, I don't look back at my failures or successes. I'm going forward with all the determination I can muster so I can win the prize. And all of this is part of that upward, upward calling. Everything is in response to that. And our response to anything spiritually is always a function of God's calling. He calls us to salvation. He calls us to godliness. He calls us to pursue him ferociously. He calls us to joy. Well, then Paul challenges his readers to follow his example living the Christian life. He and others have been the best examples that they know how to be. And it's always helpful to, have, to follow the example of someone who's been around the block a time or two. Well, guess what? We experience joy when God uses us to help someone going through a similar situation. Sharing our wisdom and the things that we've learned from the Lord with others in their hard times brings joy to us because God not only reminds us of our own spiritual growth, but he also demonstrates that all things work together for our good and his glory over and over again. Amen. Next, Paul reminds them that there are people who don't follow Christ, and they are enemies of the cross, and he sees that their end is destruction, and it absolutely breaks his heart. And Paul, who has had such hard words for these false teachers, also understands their ultimate destination. Paul then closes the chapter by reminding the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven and that they eagerly await for a savior. Jesus is coming back for us. Next, he reminds them that the Lord Jesus is going to transform their bodies to make it like his body and glory. And our bodies are going to be resurrected like he was. Amen. And finally, Paul says that God will exert the power that he has to subject all things to himself. God will ultimately judge the world. He will subject all things to himself. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. God wins. God wins. God wins. Amen. And that brings joy to our hearts. Amen. So Paul has told the Philippians what they needed to know to experience joy. And if we think about it, Jesus also experienced joy in his earthly life. But I would have to say that no man or woman alive has ever experienced joy in quite the same way. Jesus found his greatest joy in going to the cross. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand. 
Those of us who trust in Christ, who count all things lost, are his greatest joy. It is unfathomable, really, that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would find joy in us. But he does. So ponder this. Your sin, your self-righteousness, all of it, you are still so vile, you are still so vile, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could pay for your sins. But you are so loved that Jesus volunteered and joyfully went to the cross to pay your debt. Ladies, there is joy to be found in life. It comes from bending the knee and counting all things lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there's so much to learn and so much we see about ourselves. I pray that not only would you show us our sin, but you would show us where we're trying to be righteous before you and earn your favor. I pray that we would see that nothing we can do can make us right in your eyes, but that you will give us your righteousness if we trust in Christ by faith. So, Lord, I, I would pray that uh, you would speak to our hearts about this. I pray that every single woman here would, uh, would know your righteousness. Lord, I pray you'd show us joy in our lives, and we ask that, that you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, we